You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we are in Acts 2. Uh, Peter's sermon, his Pentecost sermon. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity just to come from worship um, and for the reminder of uh, Psalm 90. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for for Mark, for his preaching, uh, for your work in and through his life and in our opportunity to worship together. Please uh, guide our thinking now, uh, we ask. Um, Pray for a focus of attention on, on your word in the Spirit this Lord's Day. And we give you thanks in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me read from... Uh, there's copies um, on, the, on the chair. Great. To set the stage, uh, the scene, that the Spirit has had an impact, um, and it's come manifested in three particular ways, a violent wind and tongues of fire and uh, the uh, apostles being able to communicate in intelligible languages so that all the people could hear what they were saying, the praise to God. A remarkable scene, the Holy Spirit sets the stage for Peter's address, um, and uh, we begin in verse 14. The first thought, as I read this, is to think in in the chaos of thousands of people in the temple courts, and the ability of the apostles to command attention and the formal address that is given in that context, which is uh, surprising. And I want to make a few observations about that, but let me begin reading in verse 14 of chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Now, I would suggest to you that there's stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed his unique word uh, in this context, not used very frequently, and then fellow Jews, explanation, listen carefully. All of that to say... This is really important. Listen up. Hear this. And in our age of entertainment, it's really a question as to how the gospel obtains a hearing and the kind of content and explanation that's required for the gospel to be received, to be understood. In an age that's kind of seriously unserious, it becomes more and more difficult, I think, to have for people to have the patience to hear 
the explanation of the gospel. And then Peter really gives a remarkable sermon here that's based on Joel, Psalm 16, Psalm 132, and Psalm 110. He's preaching the Old Testament in the context of the temple courts to thousands of people. And his first uh, you know, basis of preaching is, is Joel, uh, the prophet Joel, 19th century B.C. prophet, um, who discusses, if you remember the prophet Joel, he talked about the locust infestation as an army of judgment sent by the Lord so that the people would be led to repent. And that's the context of what... And so at one point, he even talks about people being drunk, the prophet Joel does. Verse 15, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, Peter says. It's only nine in the morning, by the way. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he launches into this prophecy from Joel. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. What Joel does is he takes the immediate historical horizon of the locust infestation that's devastating Israel and then segues from that immediate crisis to the day of the Lord. And he draws a connection between that pandemic equivalent historical event, right? And ties it into the judgment of God and expects that that immediate crisis will have an impact on people becoming right with God. And it will lead to repentance. This is the basis of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Verse 21 con is, concludes the Joel part, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel mixes those two horizons, the immediate and the far distant future, the day of the Lord, and Peter, in effect, is saying, this is it. This is the day of the Lord. It has commenced. And really, with the birth of Christ, you have the beginning of the last days. We are now heading toward the day of the Lord. And Joel is connecting, uh, Peter is connecting Joel to the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. That's heavy. I mean, that's... Uh, Mark, Joel, uh, Mark joked in the first service. Well, he didn't joke. He said Psalm 90 is heavy, and it is indeed. Well, this is heavy, too, in the midst of a throng, a crowd of people. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God 
credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. If you read this sermon, it's only three minutes to read it. So we know that uh, Peter had to say a lot more. And it almost has the feeling in verse 22 that this is a kind of summation of the description of the life of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was a man, does not back away from the humanity, from the reality of the incarnation, accredited to God by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Again, the question of the miraculous, which bothers moderns, uh, needs to be answered in the light of, well, do you really believe in a creator and a redeemer and a revealer? Um, one who uh, made us um, is certainly capable of providing for the miraculous uh, in our midst. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. There's so much in that one sentence. One, that before the creation of the world, the lamb was slain. So there is a, an eternal, deliberate plan by God of this, all that took place here. But that doesn't take away from the responsibility that Peter suggests for those that have helped put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. In verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I find it interesting in comparing sort of the ancient perspective and the modern perspective that people today are not really worried or thoughtful about salvation. They're much more interested in significance and survival. And to help illustrate that for me was to compare uh, the movie Castaway. It's an old movie now, uh, so one dates themselves by referencing it, but uh, to compare Castaway and Tom Hanks in that movie to uh, Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe's novel. It's just really striking in the original Robinson Crusoe. It is really a story of the prodigal son where the individual is shipwrecked, Robinson is shipwrecked on an island, and over time he's wrestling with his, his, with God and coming to God. And uh, at one point he prays a line from Acts, God, give me the gift of repentance. And it's a phenomenal story that's laid out because as time goes on, he is wrestling with soul and salvation and comes to be convinced that he's thankful to have been stranded on this island because it's caused him to face his need for God. 
and he comes to God in Christ. Uh, the only thing he, one of the few things he had from the ship that was uh, helpful for him and meaningful for him, uh, besides things, was a Bible. And so he's reading and praying the Bible. Now, contrast that to Castaway, where uh, Tom Hanks plays a uh, FedEx efficiency expert, and he's lost on this deserted island because of the plane crash, winds up there, and uh, we have, one, there's quite a difference between a movie and a novel, because a novel can explore the soul movie can't quite do that. I mean, one of the only insights we have into what Tom Hanks is thinking, I forget the movie name, what Tom Hanks is thinking was the bloody uh, handprint on the volleyball or the, yeah, the volleyball that looks like a face. And he'll talk to Wilson. I remember Wilson, but I don't remember the actor's name, uh, the character's name. Um, and that's, it's, it remains completely shallow and superficial, the insight into him. I mean, we get a clue from him looking at the, the locket of his fiance. And so the message really is survival. As you know, for, if you've watched the movie, he finally builds a raft and sort of uh, gets out to sea to a certain death, but by luck and by chance, uh, a tanker sees him, he's brought back, uh, I forget how many years, three years, something like that. And he's brought back and his uh, fiance had married, already had children. I mean, he was given up for dead, uh, natural. So even romantic love didn't carry through to any kind of uh, durability. Uh, whereas Robinson Crusoe, well, the, let me finish my thought. Uh, I interrupt myself. Castaway uh, ends up with him at that lonely flat point in Texas, looking, you know, nothing in all directions. He delivers a FedEx package that he had with him uh, that was lost and uh, to a person. And that's how the, it ends. Kind of he's as lost on Earth as he was in the Pacific Islands. Um, and romantic love didn't really endure. Robinson Crusoe's life just becomes deeper and richer. He's building furniture. He's, he's, he's making life. He's, uh, he's made an inhabitant uh, habitation out of all of this. And he's really at peace with God and thankful that it all happened. And it's such a difference between a society that is rooted in survival and significance and a society that is rooted in the need for salvation. Um, we have become, in the Western world, very attached to visibility and empiricism and capital M materialism. Um, I, I don't mean just things, but I mean our sum and substance is on a certain one-level dimension. Uh, and yet we continue to preach this message of salvation and this gospel. Because I think rooted in human nature is the realization that survival and significance alone are not the issue. That creator and redeemer and revealer are really important. Well, verse 25, 
David said about him, and this is, uh, I actually did Psalm 16 in the dean's class not too long ago, and uh, David here is speaking, I think Psalm 16 is a beautiful psalm of human flourishing um, and what it means to be fulfilled in life. And David here is speaking in verse 25, I saw the Lord, Peter is speaking what David said, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you have not abandoned me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And what Peter is saying is, who is David talking about? Not just himself. Again, one-dimensional level. Um, the immediate horizon, David's there. But he's really talking about the Messiah. Uh, and this is one reason why, uh, you know, uh, if you take in Luke 24, when Jesus was on that road to Emmaus and talking to the two disciples and filling them in from the law, the prophet, and he'll say to the disciples in the upper room, the Psalms, he'll add the Psalms, those 40 days that Jesus spent with the disciples was a real a lesson in interpreting the Old Testament in an apostolic way of seeing how it all applied uh, to Jesus. And this is what Peter now does using Psalm 16 and David's testimony. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And that's a quote from Psalm 132, verse 11, even though it doesn't show up as a small uh, footnote. Verse uh, 31, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and now he's quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool from, for your feet. Psalm 110, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is a Christological psalm. It is a Christ-centered psalm. And there, Peter pulls it in. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel... Now, remember, Peter really struggled with the openness of the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, Cornelius, the Cornelius story, all of that. Peter struggled with that. At this point, Peter is thinking just of Israelites, all the Israelites, um, and, and those who have become converted to Judaism, uh, the children of Abraham. So this change hasn't happened yet in Peter's thinking. Um, and it will be difficult for Peter uh, to make that switch. Uh, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh, 
you know that Luke paid attention to the heart. Uh, you know, he, tradition has it that he has a medical background. And the, uh, there's several key references that we've already made, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, were not our hearts burning within us as he explained to us the scriptures? That burning heart. And then in the choice of uh, between Joseph and Matthias for the 12th apostle, Peter prays to the Lord who is everyone's heart knower. Uh, again, and now the reference that Luke uses here they were cut to the heart. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? It's a great expression for uh, repentance. Um, there's uh, on the back side of your uh, the handout, go all the way down to C and number two. The whole concern for uh, repentance and what's involved in repentance. And Dallas Willard, uh, some of you may recognize that name from his book, The Divine Conspiracy and Heart Renovation, a uh, person who is uh, a philosophy teacher at UCLA, but has had a profound impact on writing what it means to follow Christ. There's a quote there, in italic, it's italicized, number two. Dallas Willard underscores the importance of repentance. And he writes, Much of what is called Christian profession today involves no remorse or sorrow at all over who one is or even for what one has done. There's little awareness of being lost or of radical evil in our hearts, bodies, and souls, which we must get away from in which only God can deliver us. To manifest such awareness today would be regarded, and certainly by most Christians as well, as psychologically sick. It is common today to hear Christians talk of their brokenness, but when you listen closely, you may discover that they are talking about their wounds, the things they have suffered, not about the evil that is in them. If we combine Joel's prophecy and uh, the concerns that come from the prophet to uh, Peter's emphasis on uh, repentance uh, and the importance of being cut to the heart, he wants them to feel guilty for crucifying Jesus. He wants them to feel that. And I, I guess that's what... Uh, we ought to, need to, feel in coming to Christ. Martin Luther had an expression that we carry around in our pockets the crucifixion nails of Jesus, the extra nails. And it's an interesting sort of picture. Luther is so good at that. Um, what comes to my mind is uh, a person by the name of David Connor. Uh, when we served a church in Bloomington, Indiana, David was only tangentially re related to the church. He'd come at Christmas and Easter. His family was more, his wife and children were more in attendance at worship. 
One Saturday afternoon, he had a few too many beers and was driving uh, home, and uh, he was passed by a, a cyclist, uh, a motorcyclist. And uh, he felt, David felt that he had been cut off, and he started to speed up. He was going to pass the motorcyclist. He lost control of his car and ran head on into a mother and child, killing them both instantly. And you know, in a Bloomington, Indiana, uh, a town that you know, is kind of well-defined, uh, it was almost like he had immediately entered hell. Um, how could you be that evil? And, you know, it's in the papers. And, uh, and I visited David uh, in jail. And uh, I'll tell you, I've, I've never seen a person mourn for his sin, for this, than David. I mean, it was almost like the, the, his face had the contours of a, of a cry. And I'll tell you, my emotional reaction in sitting with him and praying with him was, I'm no different than him. Apart from Christ, I'm just as lost just as much in need of God's mercy as David Connor. David is still in that community. He really came to Christ in a very sincere and powerful way. He served as an elder in that church long after we had left. Um, it's important for all of us to be cut to the heart to know why we need to be saved. And it's not just so that uh, Christ makes life a little better for us. And we can add uh, a sense of kind of uh, salvation insurance policy. Um, Repent and be baptized is Peter's response. When the people heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for you, for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And there he's speaking probably better than he realized because uh, he has no idea quite at this point who all will be included for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I guess you could say that in any and every generation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow, that's a powerful three-minute sermon, um, covering quite a bit of Old Testament um, in, a, in a powerful way. I, I think the theme here is, is really salvation and what, is, uh, what was given by Jesus, to save us, 
how we respond to that in repentance uh, and the realization that we throw ourselves on the mercy and provision of God. If you turn the page back again to the... uh, I would like to sort of draw out, because you can look at this, uh, take it away, and maybe... uh, reference it. Uh, Number three, the British theologian Ario White, uh, the person that uh, really had an impact in uh, British Baptist circles uh, for a number of years. I think he died in 2003. Um, But he describes in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology the nature of salvation. And I've always found this quote really, uh, really helpful. And so I'm including it here. And uh, let me give you a sense of the scope of how Ario White describes salvation. And I think he's describing it in a way that's true to the Bible. He says, The comprehensiveness of salvation may be shown by what we are saved from. And this includes sin and death, guilt and estrangement, ignorance of truth, bondage to habit and vice, fear of demons, of death, of life, of God, of hell, despair of self, alienation from others, pressures of the world, a meaningless life. That's what we are saved from. But what we are saved for, peace with God, access to God's favor and presence, hope of regaining the glory intended for men and women, Endurance in suffering, steadfast character, an optimistic mind, inner motivations of divine love and the power of the Spirit, ongoing experience of the risen Christ within our souls, and sustaining joy in God. Salvation extends also to society, aiming at realizing the kingdom of God, to nature, Ending, his bondage to fu- ending its bondage to futility and to the universe, attaining final reconciliation of a fragmented cosmos. Is salvation big? I think it is. It's what we're saved from. It's what we're saved for. Uh, it's not just a first responder rescue package. It is a total life uh, Ario White continues, salvation is past, present, and future. That is, salvation includes that which is given freely and finally by God's grace. And he lists it, forgiveness, justification, friendship, reconciliation, atonement, sonship, and new birth. And that which is continually imparted, sanctification, growing emancipation from evil, growing enrichment of all good, the enjoyment of eternal life, experience of the Spirit's power, liberty, joy, advancing maturity and conformity to Christ, and that's still to be attained. Redemption of the body, perfect Christlessness, Christlikeness, and final glory. And then finally, salvation is spiritual, acceptance with God, forgiveness, adoption, reception of the Spirit, immortality. It's emotional, strong assurance, peace, courage, hopefulness, and joy. It's practical, prayer guidance, prayer guidance, discipline, dedication, and service. It's ethical, a new moral dynamic for new moral aims, freedom, victory. It's personal, new thoughts, convictions, horizons, motives, satisfactions, self-fulfillment. It's social, a new sense of community with Christians, of compassion toward all, overriding impulse to love as Jesus has loved. Have you ever thought of salvation in such a holistic way? 
kind of all-encompassing way, uh, it's not an insurance package. <laughs> it's a total life transformation uh, that the Lord has given to us. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. Boy, it's interesting if we just take this as, a, um, as kind of an ideal sermon and uh, all that accompanies that, the context of sobriety and, and uh, intellectual seriousness together with the passion of a convicting spirit-led testimony uh, to, uh, to sort of a climax, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And, uh, and then it's followed up with baptism, a physical act, uh, a defining moment. Baptism is a defining moment. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a great sermon. Uh, next week, um, our text is really short. Uh, I'm just doing the description of the fellowship of believers, uh, what they devoted themselves to, the four key elements of their devotion. I think it's a beautiful picture of the church. And by the way, my daughter, who lives and works and ministers in San Diego, along with her husband and three young boys, is preaching this morning on this text, Acts 2, 42 through 47, um, for which I feel really good. Virginia is there helping with uh, Micah and Jonah and Ezra um, so that she can sort of preach. <laughs> She's like me uh, in, this, in regard to I really kind of enjoy preparing. Preparing is not work for me. Preparing is what I really want to do. I, I could skip the delivery aspect. <laughs> now, that doesn't work, uh, you know. Um, but, uh, and it's not because I don't like people. I like people. Uh, it's just I don't get my kicks out of presenting. I love the truth and reflecting on it and thinking about it. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, please apply this truth to our hearts. Um, thank you, Lord, for the comprehensiveness and for the breadth and for the personalness of salvation. Help us to live into this wonderful redemptive provision that you have given to us. Uh, together we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.